Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, Dad and I are still on a high after meeting so many wonderful people in Bendigo and Adelaide during our live shows. And Brisbane, guess what? You folks are next. So we'll be heading to the Paddo Tavern in Paddington on the 11th of February. So head to standup.com.au and search Loose Units Live or head to the Loose Units event page on Facebook. Enjoy the episode. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. My dad was a cop in the 1980s in Sydney, which has widely been described as an absolute storm. Now, you all know this. Presumably, you've read the book Loose Units, and you've listened to Loose Units, the podcast, and season two of Loose Units, the podcast, Electric Blue. But guess what? Dad was also in the Work Cover Authority, which meant he was involved investigating some of the most horrific industrial accidents and cover-ups imaginable. So for this very special mini-series, we are doing... Work Cover Authority Cases with Dad, in Loose Units, Not Safe for Work. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, Not Safe for Work. This is a mini-series where we are going to explore Dad's time in Work Cover Authority, which I guess is kind of a strange uh, area of investigation, but if you're a fan of Loose Units, you will recall a case, and Dad, you know this case very well. It's the one where there was the poor kid who was trapped in the... uh, the, the uh the the uh, machine that makes that's, are we allowed to say what the machine made? I don't know if we can rice bubbles. There we go. And we'll be hearing from someone's <laughs> we lawyers. Haven't said, we haven't said which company made the rice bubbles. So obviously that was a, clearly a taste of what it was like to work in industrial accidents. Dad, could you just highlight for people what work cover is? Okay, well, work cover, it used to be called the Department of Industrial Relations and Employment. And why should people be... Because that sounds extremely dry. Why would people be interested in hearing about this? Well, if I had have said it was about the Department of Industrial Relations and Employment, you'd probably just, you know, whatever. But, but, could you think of a more exciting name for it? Um, you mean make up a name? Yeah, just come up with a name for this like group that you were working oh, for. Well, the the department that investigated all horrendous things that you can never imagine to do with any on-site accident, workplace accident, and also uh, anything to do with unions at the big end of town. Okay. It was really, it was absolutely, mark my words, you're going to hear some shit. So how about the Department of Horrendous Accidental Mysteries? Yeah, but except that they generally weren't. I mean, it was my job to go in and unravel the mystery. So it was effectively detective work, but it was oh, very, much so. very gruesome, right? Yeah. So you left the... Can, poli- I, yeah, can I just tell you that... After I'd left the police force, mm. I mean, I was thinking about leaving the police force for probably maybe a year. Yeah. But, I mean, it was a big thing to leave because emotionally it has its hooks sort of dug right into every part of your body because it's 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 a sort of an institution where 
it's so intense. Mm. It's a love-hate relationship. It's like people when they come back from war, mm. they, they miss it. No matter how terrible it is, it becomes this part of your, you, you kind of, you, you chase um, that, that fix of adrenaline. Did, and, you, did you get flashbacks or any of those other things? Um, no, not really. But I remember flicking through when I started to realise that my time, my days were numbered in the New South Wales Police Force because I was just sick of, uh, God, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was in Auckland um, recently mm. and... Um, I th- this statistic that I'm about to tell you is fairly fairly scary, and that is that the the year that I left the New South Wales Police Force, they were losing about 150 police a month. Holy shit! For pulling the pin, and is that because of why? 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 For the same reasons that I they, they were so there was just such disillusionment. Right. They had they had a real problem. They were and they were losing really really highly skilled police. Mm. You know that the core of the police force, and and I think from sort of an experience perspective that the police force really suffered. Um, I'm not going to say a brain drain. That sounds a bit, you know, ostentatious. But, um, you know, they lost a lot of incredible talent and, and that was good for other industries in, in, in sort of allied industries like security. And I know I know a lot of police that went on to do incredible things in the private sector and, mm. and might I add, earn a lot of money. And a lot of police that I worked with set up... Uh, you know, um, sort of risk management companies and things like that. So, what was it that drew you not to the corporate sector but to work cover? Well, I've always liked the uh, sort of the government agency. Right. I guess it's the security. You know, we had a young family. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my parents at the time thought it was grossly irresponsible for me to pull the pin on the police force, even right. though the weird thing is that everyone was against it in the beginning. <laughs> but then they come around and think, oh, yeah, you know, it's not such a, such a bad thing. And then when I sort of told everyone that I was going to leave. So I started going through the government gazettes and I saw this ad one day. Now, you know that I worked in engineering for five years yeah. prior to joining the New South Wales Police Force. Now, is this the tool-making stuff? Tool-making, safes, oh, uh, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. Hmm. Heavy industry, engineering, um, had a very good sense of that type of industry. And then one day I, uh, in the New South Wales Gazette, they used to um, have these sort of gazette newspapers. Right. And there was a job for a safety inspector with the uh, Department of Industrial Relations and Employment. And it was just it was in that crossover period where it was going to become the New South Wales Work Cover Authority. Mm. Get ready for this. The description in a nutshell was, must have an engineering background with strong investigative skills. And you just spent, you know, how many years in the police force? In the New South oh, police probably force? close to eight years. Okay, great. And you'd obviously done, as listeners will know, you'd done general duties, forensics, air wing, you know, fingerprints, all kinds of stuff. Mm. So, I mean, do you remember the interview? I do. I, I, it's, I can remember it so clearly. I can actually remember the makeup of the panel. And I can picture the three people. Oh, it was like a, it was like an audition in like um panel of three. They had a, a female. Oh, it's like Footloose. You had to dance for them. There was no dancing. Oh, all right. Um, I was very nervous, mm. but I knew I had an incredible uh, CV, and I just knew that I uh, that if I put my best foot forward. I had a good chance. I have a question, um, Dad. Now I've been told by people, including yourself, that you should never look for a job uh, unless you're still employed at the previous job. Like you shouldn't quit and then just be out in the middle of nowhere, right? So, did you quit and then start looking, or were you looking before you left the police force? I was looking, but I actually resigned. I was so, oh God, I don't want to sound like a total tosser. But no, it's fine. It's fine. I was actually very confident. 
that you'd get but, something else. That I'd get no, I, that I'd get this particular gig. Really? So I pulled the pin, mm. and um, how did that go? By the way, I mean, obviously, it was you- terrible. I did, I did what was called an exit interview. I was interviewed um, by this really, really lovely sergeant, yeah. and he was devastated. He just thought he he sort of sussed me out and thought I was pretty genuine. He looked at my service uh, record in the police force, mm. and he said, "Look, John, I know there's nothing I can do to." to change your mind, but he wanted me to fill out this very, very intense questionnaire about why I was leaving the New South Wales Police Force. If I had have known what I now know in that I was never going to go back to the police force, I would have answered the questionnaire honestly, Yeah. but I lied and made out that uh, the police force was the best job in the world. You didn't want to burn any bridges. Precisely. I thought, you know, you just never know. Mm. I may want to come back. So I made it all very nice and sort of frothy. But I did the police force a big disservice because what the police force in doing these exit interviews, of which they were doing about, let me think about this, maybe about between twelve and 1,500 a year. That's a massive yeah. rate. They really, if all the police that were leaving had been honest, they then could have used that in a genuine way to, to, to fix up some of the terrible problems. Yeah, um, The morale was low. But anyway, look, the listeners are here today to hear what happened with me in, in the Work Cover Authority. I, I did the big interview, and at the very, very end, there was a gentleman in the middle uh, of this panel, and his name was Paul McLaughlin. He was the director of the department mm. and a lovely, lovely guy. And at the very end of the interview, the last question to me was, is there anything you'd like to say in closing that you feel might enhance your possibilities of getting this particular job? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'd always wanted to say what I'm about to say, and I said, uh, well, actually, there's one thing. Yes, uh, I come from good stock which is an expression, I, did a bit of, I didn't really know what it meant, but it's been one of those phrases used in the family. Yeah. It just sounded great. But what it really means is that you don't have any convict blood in your family. Did you know that? Why would that be important? Uh, it's not important at all. But So why would you say it? Because I didn't know what it meant at the time. So you I said thought, a thing that sounded cool, and then you realize actually it made you sound like old money. <laughs> which you're not. I mean, No, we- no. The thing is that people say it when they don't think they have any convict blood in your family. It used to be yeah. a long time ago. A bad thing. Of course, now it's really cool and exciting and wonderful and something to brag about. So what I was actually saying to them, in essence, was something I didn't really know what I was... What, I didn't understand the connotation. But as it turns out, as I found out later, many years later, is that we actually do have convict blood. Right. Do in we? In our family. Yeah. How much are we talking here? First fleet stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Ooh. So really exciting stuff. But that's... That no. just sounds like you ended a very good interview with like some cryptic bullshit, like the eagle flies at midnight, wink, and they're mm. like, uh, <laughs> does it? <Yeah. laughs> well, some do. Um, but anyway, look, I got the gig. Now, uh, how did mum feel about this? Listeners are now well acquainted with you know mum, and she was obviously out of the force at this point. Was she pissed? Was she okay no, with it? She was, I think, really, really, she wanted me to leave the police force. Okay. The shift work. I, I, I was sick to death of shift work. How did your friends take you leaving the force, by the way? Um, you know, your buddies and your sergeants. and You know, it was really... Oh God, look, it was emotionally... Actually, what I may not have told you, Paul, mm. is that um, for many, many years, I was... You know, I, I used to get a bit sad every time I saw a police car. Really? Yeah, and if I heard a siren. You never told me that. No. 
That's that amazing. Just, just came back to me then. Just think about this, though. Listeners and readers of Loose Units have read and listened to, you know, hundreds of hours of, of your adventures and of our interactions. So, you living the force, if I'm dwelling on it a little bit, I think it's because they might want to know what could possibly push you out of that career. Was it any one specific incident or was it just... Just like a general climate of just needing to get away from this traumatic job. Well, there was that major case. Look, I, a lot of my colleagues were being um, arrested, arrested and charged with you know high level corruption. Yeah. And um, I mean, there are a couple of stories. Look, we're, we're moving on from the police, but I'll just say this to you that for anyone that comes to the live shows, um, I can promise you there'll be a few more police stories that you've never heard. Yeah, we're not done with the police stuff yet. No, we, no. we just wanted to keep it, you know, partitioned. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, there's stuff that we do save for mm. the live shows because I think that's really important for the people that come along to have some extra really... Yeah. And I've still got, you know, stuff in the back pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And the live shows have been a real treat, mm. just watching people react in real time. Mm. But one of the things I like about this is that we get to delve very, very deep from like a narrative perspective, I find it very interesting that there are things you clearly liked about the police force and that you almost needed. You need well, th- I, I suffered terrible withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Like I used to absolutely, I actually regretted for some time. Leaving. But look, for any listeners out there that are feeling at this point, well, you know, we've been for the ride with the police force. You know, if you've got any doubts or trepidation or fear or worry about is the work cover going to be as exciting? I can guarantee you all, here and now, I'll give you an ironclad guarantee that you're going to hear some really fucked up shit. Like we're talking A-grade, major, bad shit. Okay. It was so, it was, I had no idea what I was, again, it's like reliving the, when I joined the New South Wales Police Force, I went out to the academy and on that fateful day I thought, what the fuck have I got myself in for? And yeah. that's exactly what I thought. When I joined the Work Cover Authority. Okay, so you've got the job, right? Mm. Congratulations. The dance went really well. You've got the job. You're in Juilliard. What's your first day like in the Work Cover Authority? I was working in the city. I was assigned a buddy. Oh, like in the police force? Same as the police force. Really? And were any of these buddies that you worked with from a police background? This particular guy, um, I won't use his name, but he was such a... Lovely, lovely guy. He really took me under his wing. And he actually, in his private life, he did some really, really interesting things. He was actually a mentor Mm. for two very, very famous boxers in Australia. Really? Yeah, and uh, he actually had um, a finger missing. Oh. That had happened, get ready for this, Yeah. as a result of an industrial accident. Oh, cool. That's like his Batman origin story. Like he, interesting? He gets industrial accidented and wants to go and fight. Here's a little fun fact, Paul, because mm-hmm. I know that people, I, or I assume that some of them do actually do like my little fun facts, but ready for this? Yeah. And I'm looking right into your eyes when I say this to you. Uh-huh. He used to shave his nose every day. <laughs> Tell me that is not so surreal. Oh. I think that's quite fascinating, it's but weird. it's like, you know, that there used to be a myth about shaving um, stimulates hair growth. Yes. Does it? <laughs> I don't know, but he used to shave his nose, but I think what he actually created was a sort of a beard, a hairy nose syndrome. Well, yeah. And then he had to maintain. Yeah, anyway. It's like... To- that's it's an like- aside. So, no. he, had a- he was missing a finger and he shaved his nose. It's like rhinoplastic topiary. Um, that's but he was a really, really lovely guy. And he uh, he had a very... Uh, he was very professional, but had a fairly laissez-faire... Uh, you know, she'll be right attitude. And he was always very kind. And, and our job, in essence, we would 
get these accidents yeah. that would come in and they ranged from, I mean, our stock and trade, and I don't want to sound callous here, were amputations. Okay. That was like pretty well every day we'd have a few a few amputations, generally fingers. Can you talk me through an amputation? Because I know in the book uh, there there is a case involving... Um, you know when you put pressure on someone gets they get cut in half and it's mm. it's that shock. What's yep. it called? Uh, it could be called toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome. And it happens to shunters on railway yards when two trains come together. Mm. So what I'm asking is, uh, can you get that with something as small as a finger? No. Okay. So it's got to be like really big. But when you say amputation, mm. I'm picturing something fairly clean. Now I guess that depends on the machinery. But could you talk listeners through? Okay. All right. Some of the machines that we used to go, we'd go into these you know, very large factories generally. Yeah. And they'd have these, uh, well, you can imagine anything to do with paper and you have guillotines. Oh, yes. So you have these massive guillotines and they can cut. Um, I'm just trying to think of the, the equivalent in sort of millimeters. Let's say we're talking, um, they could cut maybe 25, 30 centimeters. A sort of a stack oh, God. Of, of paper, yeah, and this the, and the and the guillotine would come down, but it doesn't come down straight. It's the top blade is at an angle, so it creates that cutting effect. Mm. And and these workers would line up the the paper or whatever had to be cut, and they'd be obviously pressing with their two hands, generally the with sort of eight fingers. Oh, you're looking at my hands here, Paul. You yeah. can see that the thumbs are set back and, and the forefingers on yeah. either side are what are leaning towards the blade. Yeah. And they would position the paper. Now then to activate the guillotine, you had a foot-operated pedal. But the problem was, here's a classic. So I'm just going to give sort of lots and lots of stories about the accidents that I went to and the ramifications. Now they'll they'll sort of start off with um, you know am- amputations, which... You know, in in the grand scheme of things, um, are, are quite serious, but they're not uh, life threatening. Okay. But I mean, let's face it: if you if you lose eight fingers, you're pretty fucked. Yep. Um, now, one of the first accidents I ever went to in a factory was where a secretary from the main office was walking past, and she inadvertently tapped the the switch on the floor. And someone had their hands in? And the guy had his two hands <gasps> in. And he's looking at her, checking her out. And as he's looking at her, she's accidentally touched the pedal yeah. and down came the guillotine and chopped eight fingers off and they fell behind the machine. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, uh, yeah, so I, I went to numerous uh, accidents like that. If they were very, very unfortunate, they'd lose two hands, depending on how far in. And there were these other weird machines that bend stainless steel. You know, when you go into uh, any sort of shop or factory or wherever you go and you see fabricated stainless steel yeah. and it's got amazing bends, that's all bent on these amazing machines. Now, they're really, really, um, they can be very dangerous. Mm. So, yeah, amputations was... Um, so, that was the thing, you, that was your stock and trade, like you said. But on your first day, first of all, when we picture police officers, we know what the uniforms look like. You and your buddy, who you've chosen not to name... What are you wearing when you're out on the job? Just we, plain clothes or? Plain clothes, uh, tie. You know, we dressed very, very nicely. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of power. Uh, we had the power to go into any place of work and shut it down. Really? You could completely, you could actually, technically you would go to, uh, when Australia used to manufacture cars, you would go out to an assembly line and you could actually stop the assembly line <gasps> by issuing a prohibition order and the entire factory would shut down if it was a major problem with safety but this is stuff you got to you know as the job as the job unfolded but what was your first <laughs> how do you approach your first case because i mean obviously you had you know you had the police academy to school you in all the basics of police work but at this point it seems like it's just you and a guy learning the ropes like what was it like actually doing the job for the first time well it was really um it was just sort of watch and learn and because there was a lot of legislation that you had to sort of grasp right and uh your your you had to get these special um, powers that had to go through. They were an act of parliament in New South Wales. They had to be gazetted mm. and, and you had to wait for the gazetting. So it had to go through the parliamentary process to get your powers, which gave you, you know, in law, the p extreme powers to go in and actually, um, you know, make recommendations. Do you mean like it's like getting a warrant made up or? Yeah, kind of. Uh, and it gave you unfettered power. Right. Um so, look, I'll just give you a few. We're also responsible for all forklift examinations, mm. overhead travelling crane, explosive power tools, all the types of um, machinery, uh, dangerous stuff. You know, the big cranes, the tower cranes, all those guys and, and women as well, but back then definitely more so men, mm. had to be um, certified. And there was a whole group within our department, I found out, that were actually going out and passing some of the, the big crane operators uh, that weren't competent, but they were taking massive backhanders in the thousands of dollars because these big crane operators, they you know they were earning serious, serious money. And you know those big mobile cranes, you see? Mm. Um, occasionally, and it's on the news, they, they tip over and uh, create, you know. Yeah. Major, major dramas. Do you remember your first case, so to speak? Well, we went into a, uh, a factory in the inner city of Sydney to do um, a forklift examination. Mm. And as we were approaching this factory, uh, it was a carpet factory. And carpet factories with the forklifts have got these 
incredibly long like lances. Oh, uh, yes. Jousting lances. Yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you seen them? Yeah, uh, the, the on forklifts. Yeah. Yeah, they go into pallets. Oh, right? no, that's the ones that go into pallets. But these are sort of like 20 foot long, <gasps> like a pole. Oh, shit. Just at one, and they go into the middle of, of the, the roll. Of the rug roll, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they pick them up. Oh. Anyway, we've, we've sort of come in and we're just standing in this huge internal um, fa- factory. Yeah. And it was so surreal. We saw two guys each on a forklift and they were actually... Um, reenacting medieval jousting with their forklifts. They were actually charging at each other <laughs> and to see who'd be the... And one person obviously would, at the last second, pull away. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you can imagine you'd have these incredibly... And they're quite sharp, these mm. massive sort of rods. They'd Well, you can imagine they'd... they'd you'd impale the other person. Impale. So this happened... Hang on, is and this we're what, watching them. That's not why you were called in, right? No, we were there to do a forklift exam. One of the guys that we were going to examine was one of the guys unlicensed, jousting oh my God. with another guy. I know. Oh, my God. And it was incredible. And I'll tell you what, that was fa- fascinating. We, my, uh, my buddy, he just sort of, he found it quite amusing. I mean, in a, in a weird way and in, in, in a, sort of a, a sort of a voyeuristic way. And yeah. we're watching this, uh, this medieval or 20, sort of 20th century jousting on, on, with forklifts. I mean, you had to see it to believe it. And they were actually almost sword fighting each other. Oh, my God. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah. And then we uh, walked over and someone said, Oi, what are you guys doing here? Blah, blah, blah. And we said, oh, we're here to do the forklift exam. But guess what? <laughs> you're never going to get a forklift license because you're a dickhead. Right. And, uh, and the other guy, we, we, we took his license off him. So oh. then the poor company yep. had no qualified forklift drivers. Oh, so that was a bit... Awkward for them. Uh, and two unemployed jousters. Mm. So, when you walk into, I'm not going to say crime scene, that's obviously the low end of the well, inspection. Well, some of them are crime scenes. Well, yes, but not this one, no, I'm saying. No, no. When you walk in, in your, you know, in your clothes, do you have a badge that you flash? Um, no, you've got a, like a little card. No badges. I mean, it wasn't like that. But by golly, we had some, uh, we had some serious powers. All right. So, what was your first actual case like something well my first case where i actually went out on my own to do an investigation yeah it was at a company in dy which is on the northern beaches of sydney how would you describe dy to someone who's not been there before uh well i want to be careful what i say because my parents live there Mm -hmm. so i you know they will leave it at that but um there's an industrial area yes sort of out the back of dy funnily enough where you went to school Ah. and anyway this particular uh I'll, I'll, I'll paint the picture of the incident. Uh, it was a fatality. Mm. So it was a process worker. A process worker is a, a worker that's sort of semi-skilled. And this particular factory made the rubber backing for carpet. You know, that that at the back of carpet to yeah. bind all, all the hair together. They've, yeah. they've got various chemicals and they're very, they're very, very strong. Yeah. And there was a two-storey high kettle. We'll call it a kettle, like a stainless steel cylinder. And you'd climb up this ladder onto this viewing platform. Yeah. And then, like in a submarine, you'd have the big round sort of wheel. Yeah. And you'd turn it and turn it. And then once it was it sort of turned in sort of fully in one direction, you could then open up this huge, um, like a, a door. Mm-hmm. And this particular door had a, had a thick glass porthole. In the middle, so that the people that were mixing up this compound could actually see how it was progressing, because it was all based on time. So the kettle is actually boiling up the like liquid, boiling this the liquid. rubber. Yes, but but what happens is this particular process worker was given an incredibly complex and intricate um, sort of 
recipe. Yeah. And it was the order of operation was incredibly precise. And there may have been maybe, uh, from memory, there were about 20 different chemicals that he had to add. He was sort of creating this amazing uh, substance that was hot and rubbery. How is he adding them, by the way? Is he? Well, they were all in powder form. Right. So, wait, he's making cup of soup. So, he... he's doing this huge, he's like making a, if you can imagine, an incredibly big cake. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, but it's sort of slightly molten. And is he on the top? So, he's opened this big hatch thing. And right? he had to add another couple of... Um, Sachets, well, you know. You know, um, sort of another couple of kilos of um, different powders. Yeah. And one thing I do remember is that all these powders were the same color, um, but he was very, very, you know, precise. He's this, this poor guy, he's doing exactly and perfectly what he was supposed to be doing. Yeah. So... He's got this hatch open and he goes to add um, one of the chemicals and it exploded. And molten rubber blew out of this machine, engulfed him in rubber. So, A, it's burning him. Yep. Slight also problem, can't breathe because it covers him completely. Yeah. So, he can't, his mouth, his nose has no... You know, it's not exposed to the air anymore. He's, in, he's encased oh, like Gumby. Oh, my God. And um, he he passed away. Now, I come in. Now, obviously, in this particular case, the problem, we didn't know this at the time, but why had there been an explosion? Right. Now, the chemical engineers that had come up with the most, you know, all the processes... Uh, I was given the order of operation and then I, with all my sort of, um, you know, skills and dogged determination to find out, because no, there has to be a reason there's an explosion. Yeah. And then through a process of elimination, and this is one of the one of the cases that I did where I was really, really basically working on my own using a lot of, you know, common sense, but also I've always had a very strong love of science. Yeah. Oh, really? Because I was very, very, actually that was probably my favourite. Um, subject subject at school yeah so i used to make um you know little explosives and <laughs> i used to actually actually i'm not not proud of myself but i once made a like a small bomb and put it on the back of a no maybe we won't talk about that well, yeah, i believe you just did okay. no it was like a fire thing oh you know? sure yeah. yeah um anyway so what i did i actually discovered that um there was a mistake in the order of operation they had mixed Step 17 and 18 should have been 18, 17, and right. they flipped it round. Right. But I had to do a lot of research to find out what would happen if, because it was completely harmless if it was done in a certain order, but if you flipped one procedure around, you created an explosive situation. And I, I got to the bottom of it. And the, the chemical engineers and the industrial chemists, they were adamant that um, they hadn't done anything wrong, but the, the reality is that they'd actually made a mistake. That got a guy killed. And, it, and yeah, got him killed. So when you find that out, I mean, what do you do next? Well, we prepare a report for the um, the chief industrial magistrate and it goes to court. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the courts have incredible power in um, you know, with factories and, and big industry and they can, you know, make, make changes and make recommendations. You don't arrest anyone though, no. No, you don't, no. But you do go to court and they, they do have very hefty fines. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. So, um, I also had to do a particularly, uh, we also dealt with a lot of electrocutions. Really? Which were really, really full on. So, quite often in the city, in most cities, when you have an empty, uh, like one tenant 
vacates a particular office floor, mm. then the new tenant comes in and they bring in all their own mm. trades and they and they refit it. Yeah. And what had happened was that the people before had actually run this particular electrical wire through one of the central columns and they'd connected connected it to the um, the water pipes, but no one knew. So what happened was this new plumber comes in, he turns off all the power, yeah. but he hadn't he didn't know that the power had been sort of somewhat dodgily run through one of the columns. So he's up in the roof hooking up various things yeah. and uh, he was electrocuted and he actually died up inside the roof, which was fairly traumatic. And when he was um, being electrocuted, his head was spasming and he was, what was happening? They heard this banging <gasps> up in the ceiling and it sounded like this incredible drum and then they ran in and they they were because these office floors are huge and um they found this guy up there still vibrating oh my god and trapped and he was literally holding on to all these copper pipes full of water which are incredible conductors of electricity oh. and and then they didn't know how to turn it off because they all the the fundamental things that you'd normally expect with wiring had all been all those rules had been broken now it was our job to go in and then do a reversal and find out exactly and these can be really really full-on examinations very very thorough lots of paperwork lots of trying to get around and figure out how this happened because unfortunately in in the world of accidents it's Mm. quite often an accident that highlights a problem so there are all these problems out there but if you don't spot them until they actually hurt That's someone. That's right. Okay. So, yeah, we often were the last people. Oh, so that was pretty intense. Okay. Well, I mean, speaking of intense, that was an intense episode of uh, Loose Units Not Safe for Work. Thank you so much for listening. Part two comes out next week. Now, listen, everyone, it's getting very, very close to Christmas. So, if you're hoping to get a copy of Loose Units for a Loved One, and you really should, or yourself, the book depository is probably your best bet. Loose Units is stocked there, and it will be dispatched in three business days. Plus, there's free delivery worldwide, so get your copy now. Or, if you're not too fussed about the Christmas deadline and you just want to read a copy of Loose Units, here's what we want you to do. Go to your local bookstore and make them order it in. Let's just blanket Australia with requests to your bookstores for copies of Loose Units. Let's just flood bookstores with this book uh, because book two is being written as we speak. I am currently writing book two of Loose Units. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this episode of Loose Units. Not safe for work. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.